Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. I'm Pastor Michael Branch. As we begin, we pray, Lord, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. If you were living at a time in the past before the New Testament, and you were looking at all the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah, you would find several things that would be really hard to make sense of, okay? So you would see these things that seemingly were contradictory, all right? Uh, as Winston Churchill famously said, uh, it's a riddle wrapped inside of enigma, wrapped inside of a mystery, okay? And that's what we see several of, and that's why Peter, in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11, says that even the prophets who wrote about the Messiah looked at what they had written to try to figure out what it meant. So the Holy Spirit divinely inspired these things. They wrote it down, and then they're looking at it perplexed, like, what in the world does that even mean, okay? Uh, it was the Spirit inspiring them to write it, even though they didn't understand it. So I want to show you some of these things, transcending mysteries that come together in regard to the birth of Christ in really, really powerful ways. There are about 330 prophecies, okay? So try to zone in here. There are about 330 prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. And as I said, most of them were fulfilled in his first coming, okay? And the rest will be fulfilled in his second coming. It's interesting to note that statistically and mathematically, the chances of one man fulfilling all of these prophecies perfectly is just mind-blowing, okay? It's like impossible to even quantify uh, the odds. For example, concerning only one prophecy where it states that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, there's, they figured that there's about a 1 in 300,000 chance that that could take place. 1 in 300,000, just one prophecy, okay? And then when you start adding prophecy upon prophecy, and, and you require that he fulfills every single one of them, then you've got a real issue because then it just, the odds go exponential, and it becomes infinitely impossible. But after examining, they actually did a study, a professor did a study, and after examining only eight of the different prophecies out of 330, the chance of one man fulfilling just eight prophecies was 1 in 10 to the 17th power. So that's a 10 with 17 zeros behind it, okay? That's the odds of him of Christ just fulfilling eight of the prophecies about his first coming. We know there were 330, so you can do the math. I can't do math, like, but, but maybe you can, maybe you're genius. But they were all fulfilled perfectly to a T. So, you know, that's, that's pretty incredible. Now, even in the Old Testament, we see foreshadowing, partial fulfillments, proclaiming the true Messiah is yet to come. And then he's going to come and fill it uh, perfectly. So I want to give you some descriptions. And you guys think in your, in your mind in these uh, these who I might be describing, okay? So first, a baby, he escaped the decree of a king and avoided certain death. He lived in Egypt as a child, but later returned to his homeland. He was known by his followers to be both humble and strong. He was tempted while in the wilderness. He was attested by God through signs, miracles, and wonders. He worked a miracle at the sea. He miraculously fed thousands of people with bread. He spoke God's word and taught God's law from a mountain. He was the mediator between God and his people. So if I were to say that, who do you think that would be? You would think it was Jesus, but it's not Jesus. It's Moses. Moses the lawgiver, a foreshadowing of Jesus, who is called the greater Moses, okay? Because he not only 
He didn't just uh, have the law at his disposal. Christ actually fulfilled the law. How about this one? He was a descendant of Abraham and of the tribe of Judah. He was born in the town of Bethlehem. He burst onto the scene from an unlikely social position. He was anointed by God to lead his people. He was both shepherd and king. He amazed the elders as a young man. He spent time in the wilderness. At times he had no place to lay his head. His popularity angered the leaders of his day. He was betrayed by those he served. He trusted God in the face of adversity. So you would think this is also a description of Jesus, but this is actually a description of King David, not Jesus. Again, Jesus is the greater king, the perfect David. One more, who am I describing? His name, when translated from Hebrew, means God is salvation. His ministry started at the Jordan River. He received the spirit of his father. He was attested by God with miracles, signs, and wonders. He raised a woman's son from the grave. He fed many people with just a few loaves and had more to spare. He healed a leper. He was betrayed for money. He fed the hungry. He gave sight to the blind. So you hear this description and you think, of course, I'm talking about Jesus. But in fact, I'm talking about the prophet Elisha. Elisha. And Jesus is the greatest prophet. He is the greater Elisha. Do you understand? So even in those imperfect men, we see the prophetic nature of the coming Messiah, and then Christ completely fulfills that, okay? And so there are several mysteries like that that we see. In Isaiah 7.14, um, we see this kind of, in all of Scripture, we see this mystery of Messiah as the man and as God, as I mentioned before, but it says in Isaiah 7.14, it says, the Lord will give you a sign when Messiah comes. Now, understand, this is 700 years before Christ was born. 700 years before Christ was born, Isaiah states that the Lord will give you a sign when the Messiah comes. And if you want to know when this is going to be, if you want to know how this is going to transpire, uh, here's your sign. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. So 700 years before Christ was born, we get this prophecy that um, the Lord himself will be born to a virgin, okay? And so this has only happened one time in human history, all right? And that's in Matthew 1. Jesus was the son of Mary and the Holy Spirit. He was not the son of Mary and Joseph. He was born of a virgin. It, it says that he will be a son, that is, he will be human, he will be born of a woman, but he will be Emmanuel, God, with us. You see the, you see the, um, the opposing kind of, a, the, what would you call that, a dichotomy. In the ninth chapter of Matthew, where we read, a child will be born, a son will be given, we see it again. The child will be born is pointing to his humanity, but yet a son is given. So... It's pointing to his deity. It's pointing to this pre-existing son of God who existed before his birth that is given to humanity. You see how that, that works there? So you have one who is both an eternal son given and a human son that is born. And if you look deeper, you see some things that were very difficult for them to understand. For example, Genesis 3.15 says that the one who comes to destroy Satan, the Messiah, will be the seed of the woman. Daniel 7.13 says he will be the son of man. Psalm 2.7 says he will be the son of God. Uh, Genesis 22 says he will be the seed of Abraham. Isaiah 11 tells us that he will be the root of Jesse. 
And 2 Samuel tells us he'll be the son of David. So when you consider all of these things, they're perceived contradictions. How can someone be the seed of a woman when a woman has no seed? How could someone be the son of man at the same time he's the son of God? How can he be the seed of Abraham but also exist before Abraham? How can he be the son of David but then the root of Jesse, the root of Jesse, who is actually David's father? How is all of this possible? How can God be man and how can man be God and at the very same time be the son of man and the son of God? How can one be a son of man and yet have no human father? And how in the world can he be the seed of a woman? Well, now you see why Peter said it was hard for the prophets to understand some of these things that they were writing. What in the world's going on here, right? In hindsight, of course, Christ being born of a virgin, Mary, a son given by his father, the Holy Spirit, makes total sense of all of it for you and I. But for them, looking at the Old Testament passages, it'd be very, very difficult to discern. Next, there's the mystery of the line of Judah, and this is an obscure but profound example of the perfection of prophecy in the Word of God. The lineage of Judah, it's laid out in Scripture that Jesus, the Messiah, will come through a certain family. So you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Judah, and we hear Christ called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It's one of the twelve tribes, and Christ was going to come through this tribe. Genesis 49.10 says, it, that the scepter, meaning the right to rule as king, will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Shiloh means peace, and Shiloh is referring to the peace of Christ when Messiah comes. So this coming future ruler is going to come through the tribe of Judah, but there's a big problem with this when we actually read in Scripture. Uh, in Genesis 38, we see the problem. We see this story unfold that there are some major indiscretions that take place in the household of the lineage of Judah. Okay, I'll let you read all that on your own time. It's not exactly PG. Uh, let me boil it down to this. The sin of this particular stretch of the lineage of Judah had disqualified the lineage of Judah, that family line, from entering the place of worship as a punishment. So because certain things transpired, then they were now disqualified from even going to the place of worship with the rest of the family, okay? So even though the law wasn't given for a period of time, God still knew what was going to happen, and he intended to honor it. So as he does, by the way, with every single prophecy, it's always fulfilled to perfect precision. So the lineage of Judah that was set to bring forth the Messiah had totally blown it. They couldn't even worship together, and it also called into question the lineage of uh, their kingship and whether or not someone would be able to rule. In Deuteronomy 23, 2 says this, no, this is concerning this particular sin that took place. No one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So if you were born as, as a result of this particular disqualifying sin, you are excluded from the privileges of worship, for ten whole generations. But I want to show you something really cool. Remember the Messiah. supposed to come through the line of Judah. But now the line of Judah is cursed. And they can't even join the gathering of the worshiping people. But if you look at Matthew chapter 1. Uh, the record of the genealogy there. And, and you can put a marker there. Because we're going to turn back there in a few minutes as well. Um, in the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. 
It says the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah, his brothers. From this point, the lineage goes through Judah. Okay? Eventually, we get to Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of whom? David. Jesse was the father of David. Now, if you count the generations between Judah and David, there are exactly ten generations. Exactly ten. So the curse is broken. It's over for the first time when David's generation is born. David is free from the taint of the disqualifying sin of his lineage in the, tri in the tribe of Judah, and he can now enter into worship in the congregation and even be a king with full privileges at that point. And so we see Christ would then come through the lineage of David. Now, there's also this other mystery, this also this seeming contradiction about the Messiah's birthplace. Bethlehem, the city of David, it was Christ's birthplace, but it was also the birthplace of King David. It actually means, Bethlehem means house of bread. And Jesus said, what? I'm the bread that comes down out of heaven, right? Well, he was born in this small little obscure town, okay, called the house of bread. And he was born of the tribe of Judah, born of the lineage of David in this little bitty town. And we remember the story. We've read it many, many times. Herod asks, where is this king, this Messiah, supposed to be born? And they said, well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. They knew Micah 5.2, and this is what it says in Micah 5.2. As for you, Bethlehem, listen to this. This is incredible. As for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel, and his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. From the days of eternity. Now, wait a second. There's going to be a child that's born in Bethlehem that is also eternal. You see how it all fits together? We see that same truth, the God-man born in a specific town at a specific appointed time in human history, and he existed eternally. So Bethlehem is identified as his home, his birthplace, and we know that to be the case. That's a fact. But remember, as someone reading these prophecies without the luxury that we have of hindsight, there were some seeming contradictions about the coming Messiah. In Hosea chapter 11, 1, it's a bit of a conundrum. It says, because out of Egypt I have called my son. Out of Egypt I have called my son. So there was this other prophecy, that a righteous branch would be despised and looked down upon, which in that day and time was anyone from Nazareth. So it says he would be a Nazarene. He would fit that bill. So trying to figure out who this Messiah was, was very, very difficult and, and seemingly impossible for these folks. How was the coming Messiah going to be from Bethlehem and Egypt and Nazarene? How was that even going to happen? Well, we get the, the answer in Matthew chapter 2. Herod says, I'm going to kill all the male children under the age of 2. So Herod has this absolutely wicked plot that we see uh, took place during the time of Moses as well. He says, I'm going to massacre them because... There's a king somewhere among these babies that were born in Bethlehem. So if you figure that, let's say the population's from five to 1,500, then just based on statistics in uh, birth rates and all, 
you've got between 20 to 70 babies in that area that, that would have been murdered at that time. And, of course, an angel, we know, came to Joseph and warned Joseph in a dream and said, get up and flee to Egypt. So Joseph goes to Egypt. And how important was it for him to go to Egypt? Well, it was important in a few different ways. Number one, it fulfilled the prophecy. And it wasn't Joseph's doing. Joseph wasn't like, oh, hey, uh, I believe Jesus is the Messiah, so somehow I need to get myself and him to Egypt so that we can come back here from, from Egypt. That's not what happened. He fled because his child was in danger. That's why he left, okay? Uh, now look at Matthew 2.6. It says he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, the prophet said. And then in Matthew 2.13, it says flee to Egypt. Verse 14, they left for Egypt. And then look at Matthew 2.23. They came and lived in a city called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. So out of Egypt I have called my son, and then they settled in uh, Nazareth, and he was a Nazarene. You see that incredible fulfillment of prophet, prophecy. It's so complex, and that prophecy alone is enough to validate Christ as the Messiah during that day and time. Okay, He had to be born in, in Bethlehem. He had to somehow be called out of Egypt, and then somehow also be called a Nazarene. Amazing. All right, so um, then there's this prophetic mystery of the right to sit on the throne as king. The Messiah was to be king with all of the kingly rights and legitimacy that was required to sit on the throne as a king. And if you, again, look back in Matthew 1 at that genealogy, you see following David, the line goes through Solomon, and then it runs all the way down into verse 11 to Jeconiah, okay? If you look there at that genealogy, Jeconiah, and Jeconiah is the last king before they were taken captive in Babylon. He's the very last king of Israel. And Israel had another king after the de deportation uh, to Babylon, okay? And they've never had another king since. And because Jeconiah was a wicked king, in Jeremiah 22:30, this is said about him, all right? He says, right, it says, write this man down as childless, a man who will not prosper in his days. For no man among his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. All right? In other words, his punishment is this. That will, there will never be a king that comes from the loins of Jeconiah. All right? Never again be a king. This is a problem. Never again be a king. It doesn't mean that he won't have children. It means that he would be childless in the sense that there would be no more legitimate king that would come out of his own loins, his own uh, bloodline, his own family lineage. Okay? So, because of this major problem, if you follow the rest of the genealogy, you see the conflict in Matthew. You pick it up in verse 12. There is Jeconiah in the passage. And then you have this whole list of names all the way down to verse 16. Jacob, in the line of Jeconiah, was the father of Joseph, okay? So if there can never be a child from the loins of Jeconiah, and Joseph is in this line, how can Jesus then be the Messiah? Would he not be disqualified? And the answer is, of course, no. Why? Well, he qualifies because Jesus was not the bloodline of Joseph. He was born of Mary. Okay, the seed, he was not the seed of Joseph. He was the seed of the woman. So, 
Uh, from Joseph, Jesus did receive rights to rule in one respect, but it also came through Mary's lineage in the bloodline of David through David's other son, Nathan. Okay? And we see these different genealogies in Matthew and Luke, and it's not a, a biblical contradiction. Sometimes people will point to that. See, see, the Bible contradicts even the genealogy of Christ. Well, one is Mary's genealogy, and the other is Joseph's genealogy, and both held certain um, benefits as being a descendant of both both their lines. Okay, okay. So the end result is two distinct genealogies qualifying Jesus in a kingly capacity, but also qualifying Jesus to be the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. So the precision of this scripture is mind-blowing when you really get into it and start considering it all the way down. Because if you look at this passage, it says, so-and-so is the father of, the father of, the father of, the father of. And then you get all the way down through verse 16, and it says, Jacob is the father of Joseph, the, doesn't say father, it says the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born. So we see the lineage all the way down, and then it swaps over to Mary, okay? Incredible. Um, so the curse of Jeconiah has no bearing on Jesus because he's not born from Jeconiah's loins. But he inherits the kingly right to rule and misses the curse because he's conceived by the Holy Spirit and then born through the seed of the woman. So there are these biblical riddles, these paradoxes of prophecy. And I want to close with one final clue um, today. In Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5, John is having a vision of the throne of God, and God is holding a scroll in his hand. This scroll is extremely important because this scroll is the title deed to the earth. Okay? You guys have bought a house, you had to go to the closing and sign all those documents. That's what we're seeing here. This is the title deed to the earth. It has belonged to Satan. These seals are broken, and every time one of these seals are broken, the earth is being transferred back to the king of kings. Right now, it still belongs to the prince of the power of the air. People are still, their allegiance is to the wicked one. The battle's been won on the cross, and he defeated death, but there are still people yet to be saved until Christ returns. Do you understand? So we're seeing this unfold here. Um, as John's looking at the throne of God and wondering when God is going to take back the earth and bring the justice that he so desperately longs for. How many of you guys long for justice? Uh, when you see the things going on in the world and you're like, Lord, how long? Well, imagine you know, what John is, is feeling here. This scroll is sealed seven times, again, like a will and testament in the Roman era, and it holds the right to rule the world. So if no one is found worthy to open this scroll, then the earth in its sinful state will remain in the clutches of the devil and remain in the clutches of the king of terror, which is death. Okay? You see, do you, do you feel what's at stake here? Because this is truly what's unfolding in heaven. And, and it says in John 5 verse 2, an angel asking with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? Who is worthy to take back the world from Satan? Okay? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, and that's just to say the grave, so nobody who's living and nobody who's ever lived and died is worthy 
There's no one worthy, no, not one. Okay? It says, quote, And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Has, has Satan won? Will death reign forever? There's no one worthy? And, and John breaks down in, in tears, weeping bitterly. And one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book in its seven seals. There is one worthy, and his name is Jesus. He's the only one worthy. Verse 6, So I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing. The angel said, a lamb was standing there. So he first saw a lion, or he, he saw a lion and he turns, and there was a lamb that looked as if he had been slain. And it says, he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now if you go all the way back to Genesis 49, 9 and 10, it says a lion will come from the tribe of Judah. In Isaiah 53, it says a lamb will be slain. One and the same. These prophecies state he comes first as the lamb to be slain. He comes again as the lion of Judah to take his throne forever. The lion and the lamb are one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see in this scene in heaven the unfolding of all of this, the, the culmination of all of this as, as God, the only rightful and worthy one, takes back the domain of the earth and reigns forevermore from that time on. So the first time he came, a star marked his arrival. The second time he comes, all the stars will fall from heaven. The first time he came, wise men and shepherds brought him gifts. The next time he comes, it says he will bring his gifts and rewards with him for his people. The first time he came, there was no room found for him in the inn, no place for him. The next time, the whole world will be unable, the Bible says, to contain his glory. The first time he came, only a few attended his arrival at his birth. The next time he comes, the Bible says, every eye will see him. The first time he came as a tiny, fragile, submissive baby. And the next time he comes as the sovereign king of kings. And all of this is resolved when you under the, understand the full span of prophecy of his first coming and his second coming. Folks, Christmas is not a shallow holiday about elves and frosting the snowman and reindeer and those things are fun and enjoy it. Have fun. But as followers of the true and living God, we need to understand priority first to teach, to understand ourselves and to teach our children, proclaim to the world that we celebrate the birth of the long-awaited Messiah who existed before time itself, who came and humbled himself to the point of death on a cross to reconcile you and I to, and your children, by the way, to our Father, our Heavenly Father. Christmas is a celebration of his birth, and I wrote this a little while back. It's a celebration of his birth, which his birth was the first act of war waged between the King of Kings and the King of Terrors, death who owned us, who had dominion over us. But when the light of life was born, 
The days of the reign of darkness and death and the devil were numbered. That's when the countdown clock began. And now we look to the skies. We live our lives. We are faithful to him. We raise our kids. But we live with an urgency knowing that he could come back at any moment, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he'll bring his reward with him. And he is the only one worthy of our worship. Amen? He's the only one worthy of our worship. So let us, during this time, adore.